tonight on Arena. Ricky Gervais and the cast of Afterlife look forward to season three and Oliver Sears with an exhibition telling the story of his Jewish family during World War II. Five one double five one is the text. You can tweet the programme at RTE Arena. Ricky Gervais's Afterlife is the most watched British comedy of the last 10 years worldwide. The series follows local newspaper journalist Tony, played by Gervais, as he comes to terms with the death of his wife, Lisa. Tony watches home videos of Lisa, where we get a sense of their relationship and where Lisa, played by Kerry Goodleyman, speaks, as we'll hear at sometimes colourful language involved, directly to Tony. If you're watching this, then I'm not around anymore. I couldn't say any of this to your face. It's too embarrassing. For you, not for me, obviously. You're never very good at hearing how lovely you are. But you are, you are, you're lovely. But you're absolutely fucking useless. So I thought I'd leave you a little guide to life without me. You've got to turn the alarm off in the morning, yeah? Because if you open the door, it'll set it off and then the alarm company think we're getting broken into. If you do set it off, you've got to ring them. The number's in your phone under alarm. The alarm code is 8645. That's your pin code. You know this. And put it on perimeter, otherwise the dog will set it off. And feed the dog, yeah? First thing in the morning and when you get in from work. And uh, what else? <coughs> got to put the bins out Tuesday mm. evenings. Black bin is household waste, green bin is recycled. And that's how it all kicked off in Afterlife. Well, despite Lisa's advice from beyond the grave, Tony is determined to take his anger out on the world, succeeds only in making his friends and colleagues pity him. The end of season two, however, it looked as if he might be about to bark on a new relationship with Emma, the nurse who'd been looking after Tony's dad. But as season three comes to Netflix this, this Friday, we will see how that develops and if Tony can indeed move on with his life. Earlier today, I spoke to Afterlife cast members Diane Morgan, Joe Hartley and Tony Way. But I started out with the creator of the series, Ricky Gervais and Tom Basden, who plays Tony's brother-in-law, Matt. Well, as we had just two seasons of both the office and extras I wanted to know if as writer Ricky had approached a third season of Afterlife with some trepidation yeah I mean uh always I mean I always whenever I write something even the first season I, I sort of do it in you know so it could end there because you, you never know you, you know people might hate it it might be an absolute flop you know the broadcaster might fall out with me I might get hit by a bus so I do that with the intention of doing a second and um, the reason of the third this time uh, was because it was slightly more dramatic. There was a bigger world. It was about bigger subjects. Um, I, I, I loved, I loved the show. I loved the cast, and I, I really loved it. Um, uh, but I still, I still said I'd only do a third if you know it, it was really mm-hmm. wanted. If the second one went down a storm, um, and I think it's crazy to end it for many reasons. It's at the top of its game. You know, people love it. The money goes up. I love working with these people. But I think it's the best thing to do artistically. And uh, I don't think I could I don't think I could end it better than I have. Mm. Um, uh, and you just got to be careful, really, because even though I'd love to do a fourth, I, I just think it, only, it doesn't take much for people to go, oh, I've had enough. Yeah. I've had enough now. So 
you, you you've got to you've got to know when to get out. You've got to get out early. I've got to cancel myself before other people. Do. <laughs> uh, you know, when we do see a side of you here, obviously people knowing you from the office, from extras, and from your stand-up routines. You know, you, you take no prisoners <laughs> along the way. But we see a very soft side in the character of Tony, and obviously anything that isn't Tony must be coming from some part of you. Has that soft side been bursting to get out for years and years and years? Or well. I think it's always I think it's always been there, and um, uh, also uh, you know all the characters have got a bit of me in them. You can't just have one that's you that's played by you, and everyone else is this. You know you have to make it fair. You have to argue with yourself when you're when you're writing it. And uh, sometimes I agree with the things Tony says, and sometimes I don't. And sometimes I agree with the person he's arguing with. You know because you've, you've sort of written both sides and. I, I think it's always been there. There's pathos in the office when Brent begs for his job back and in extras when he, said, he says sorry to Maggie. Derek was more explicitly um, uh, dramatic. Mm. And, uh, 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 so it's always been there. But I think this is just about such a big subject that everyone identifies. With. Everyone's grieving. Everyone's gone through something. So it, it, just, it just seems um, much more like he's, you know, is wearing his heart on his sleeve. And also... Um, is this the first character I've played that's grieving? And so, of course, he cries more. Yeah. Of course, he's more angry. Of course, he's more pathetic in many ways because he's he's devastated. He's hurt. He's wounded. He doesn't know what to do. You can't you can't choose your emotions. He doesn't know what to do. He tries everything. He tries anger, insults, drink. You know, um, and none of it really works. And uh, uh, until season three, where. You know, he just no spoilers, but he discovers the only thing that can even keep him alive, and and that's yeah. sort of helping others. Yeah, and indeed, Matt, uh, Tom, Tom Bazin with you there as well, Ricky. Uh, Matt, the character of Matt that you play, who's the brother-in-law. So mm. Matt has lost his sister in the, yeah. in this in this story as well. I don't think Matt, yeah. <laughs> certainly up until season three, has seen much of the softer side of 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 Tony. But has uh, has Tom Basden seen a lot of the softer side of Ricky Gervais in the making of this? <laughs> I mean, uh, yeah, of course. I think I think you know the the thing about when we make this show is I think that the 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 comedy has to feel real. It has to feel like you, you're you're finding it funny that it's it's funny on set and the emotions, you know, particularly the kind of sadness has to feel real. And so when we're when we're kind of making when we when we when we're doing the scenes, we we're always trying to. To get to that, to kind of find find a, a way through it, where you kind of really believe it, where you feel affected by it yourself as you're doing it. So, yeah, you, 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 I think for, for me and the, the, all of the cast, really, that you, there has to be the sense that we're that we're really onto mm. the, the kind of emotional truth of this, that we're not faking this, because otherwise you, it just wouldn't ring true when you're watching it. And there is that constant uh, challenge that you have the emotional truth has to be there and the comedy has to be there as well. Now, I've seen the, the outtakes and you seem to have been the butt of many's uh, a corpse, as they call it, when the actor laughs in the midst of trying to deliver a line. I, I wondered, uh, Tom, uh, how, how do you manage when Ricky Gervais is laughing into your face as you have to remain terribly serious? <laughs> I mean... With with mixed success, I guess. Is the answer to that. I mean, it sort of depends. Like there, there'll be a scene that we did when uh, in this series where Ricky is is letting off an air horn in my face, my favourite, and and I'm um, falling onto loads of boxes and it severely injuring myself. And the I mean, it's made it funnier. Yeah, yeah. And um, 
you know, in that context, he can corpse all he likes because that's what's what Tony is doing. <laughs> yeah, and that was that was a, a, a really happy accident because when <laughs> when we first did it and he fell, it was that's the take that's in the series. We got it right. No, you used the first one. Yeah, yeah. But then I did another ten for my own amusement and got it more and more dangerous. And, yeah. and I was laughing. I was laughing so much that every time he had to fall, and we were getting it higher, and we were putting more boxes. <laughs> And it was just, it was yeah. just the funniest thing because it's visceral. There's no clever lines. There's no, there's no plot. It's just one bloke making another bloke fall over. There's nothing <laughs> funnier than that. Yeah. And, and uh, yes, I guess Ricky Gervais that maybe some of those so-called corpsings were you a little directorial ploy on your part to push things as far as they could possibly go. I guess there was a serious element to making everybody laugh on set too. Well, there's one bit where I'm laughing. And then uh, uh, he really did fall and hurt his elbow. And he got up and said, I've hurt my elbow on the dado rail. And I <laughs> laughed again because it was just a funny thing to say. Just, <laughs> it's just this, this, this guy, he plays a pathetic dork really well, well don't you? You know, a, a lanky, not in this show, I know, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Um, I, think, we, I think when you're when you're doing comedy as well, and obviously there's so much of this that, that is that is dramatic, that is really heartfelt. But I think that the performers have to be in touch with what's funny all the time, because then then they they can bring it into the scenes. They can kind of feel it when they're yeah. doing it. It's important, I think. Uh, but mind you, there was serious worry. There were serious worries, Ricky, when people saw the trailer and Brandy. People said, "What is going to happen with Brandy?" I never would have forgiven you, and this is not a spoiler. Right. You're allowing us to say Brandy survives yes. season three. Um, it's the one spoiler that everyone is allowed to 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 do, and I encourage it. The dog does not die. <laughs> I promise. I, I I couldn't have forgiven myself. No, the dog does not die. Uh, uh, so everyone relax you can watch this in fact no one dies I can give you that okay Okay. having pets instead of children robs us of humanity that's a quote from the Pope (laughs) what was your reaction to that Ricky because you're a great animal lover yeah, but it's it's not the most stupid thing he said, is it? I mean, <laughs> is it? <laughs> it's stupid. It's a stupid thing to say, but it's uh, it's ridiculous, isn't it? It's a it's a it's a strange thing to say, but um, yeah, I, I uh, who, who, who are we robbing? It's weird. I talk about this in my stand up in uh, humanity, where people say it's selfish not to have children. How can it be selfish not to bring someone into the world that doesn't exist yet on any level. It's, it's just a, it's just, I don't know why, st- yeah, yeah, stupid. Yeah, you you were in Dublin, you, you were in Dublin last year with, was it was Supernature that you brought here, in fact, wasn't it, at the end of last year? Yes, yeah. You have a soft yeah. spot for the Irish audience? Uh, they're always amazing. I, I played two nights at the Dublin, uh, uh, at the O2 Arena, um, and, oh, they're one louder. It, it was, it's, it's great. I, I first went there, I think, with um, politics, then I, I went back with, uh, I think, science and uh, humanity. Um, they're they're always they're always great. It, I I love I love Dublin. I think I started off my one tour there after the first time I played. Um, but there is fantastic, and I love Dublin as well as a, a city. It's, it was great. Well, listen, hope to see you here very uh, again very soon. Congratulations on, on the brilliance of all three seasons. I'd love to say give us season four, but I kind of understand where you're coming from. Thanks to you, Ricky, and too thanks tired. also to Tom. <laughs> okay. Thank <you. laughs> thanks a million.
Oh, it's not funny, actually. That oh, wow. I disagree. Tony, can you clear this up, please? No. <laughs> Hurt my elbow as well. There you go, Ricky Gervais and Tom Basden there in that scene from season three of Afterlife, the scene that Tom Basden did ten times and then Ricky Gervais used the first take, which is the one that we just heard there. Earlier, I also had a chance to speak to Diane Morgan, who plays Kath in Afterlife. Kath sells advertising at the Tamburi Gazette. That's the newspaper where the whole thing is set. Tony Way was also with us. He plays Lenny, a photographer with the paper, who goes out on assignment with Tony to interview locals with, <laughs> to say the least, unusual stories. And Joe Hartley, who plays June, who has become the character who has become the love of Lenny's life. Diane Morgan will be familiar to many of you for her character Philomena Kunk in Charlie Brooker's Weekly Wipe and as Liz in Sharon Horgan's Motherland. But she's also written and performed her own BBC Two comedy series Mandy. And I asked Diane if working on other people's writing, as she does here in Afterlife, takes the pressure off her. Yes, absolutely. With Mandy, I, I, obviously, I can't blame anyone apart from me. It's all down to me. Even but, the costume, is <laughs> <you>? Yeah, <laughs> that's right. I did my own costume. Oh. But um, but with this, yeah, I can really relax, you know, to a certain mm. extent, and and enjoy the whole cast and the script and Ricky and Ricky knows exactly what he wants and what he's doing, and it's just. It's just, it's such a joy. Every day we would go in and just laugh from morning mm. to mid-afternoon when we yeah, finished. Yeah, we got home. Yeah. And it's just the jammiest job in the world because he knows exactly what he wants. So it's all, it all feels really easy, well, it does to us. I mean, mm. obviously for him it's, it's, it's really mm. difficult yeah. and he's got lots to think about. But for us it's just... It makes it oh, easy for us. God, it's just... So lovely, and and I can hear even the way you're you're talking among yourselves as you, as as you're as you're answering there, uh, Tony in particular. I heard you there. There, it sounds as if there is a sense of community, a real sense of community on the set. But how much input is there, or how how strictly written is is Ricky's work in that you know there are beats that must be met, and don't be heading off on a little journey of your own, a little piece of improvisation, please. <laughs> hey, um, you're you're allowed to improvise. I think some characters lend themselves to it more than others i don't think um i don't improvise that much there'd be bits like when we're doing the interviews that we'll add little bits here and there mm. and, and and ricky's very open to that but there are other characters mm. who come in and just do a full performance that of their own creation like yeah. when david Earl comes in as brian gittings you never know what's going to happen there it's impossible <laughs> yeah. um and I think you, Joe, you you did a lot of improvisation in, in um, series one, especially. Yeah. Um, but there's definitely a lot of in rehearsal and character building stuff. There's you, the input is is greatly appreciated by Ricky. He wants us to be involved. It's really yeah. nice. Yeah, and that relationship between you playing the character of Lenny, the photographer, and Tony obviously has grown over the three seasons. But uh, Joe, uh, Tony yeah. mentioning there that that improvisation was was certainly a part of what you did in season one. Your character in particular strikes me as one of those who has who treads that line between the very serious side of this story and it's a very sad story that that we're being told in some ways, and also it's hilariously funny in in places. But there's a scene in season three where. June kind of gives Tony a, a, a good talking to. She's she's explaining to him about there's a there's an insurance policy and Tony's trying to decide what to do to do with it. And and she talks to him directly about love. Lenny told me about the life insurance money. All right. 
He hasn't cashed it because he don't want it under these circumstances. Oh, my God, that's so romantic. Well, it is, but the money's not symbolic of Lisa, darling. Money's just spending tokens. Lisa was a beautiful person who you spent your life with. She lives in your heart. She only took out the life insurance so you didn't have to worry about stuff. Take it from the insurance company at least. Enjoy it. Blow it at a casino if you have to. If you don't spend it, Lisa wasted her time. Now, in that speech, how much much improvisation was going on, first of all? And is that a very different register from the, the more comic scenes? Yes, it is. And there wasn't any improvisation in that scene, actually. It was a beautiful little monologue that was written by Ricky uh, that when I got the script, I actually started to cry in the flat because it was like another, just a little dimension to June because, you know, these people, like we was talking about earlier with Ricky, the characters you think don't notice anything or they're a bit nuts or they're a bit silly or they're kind of like, she just overshares, she's there and you, you just pop it along and then all of a sudden she, you notice she's seen everything and she's mm. seen his pain and she's given him that sort of, like you said, direct experience that she's had uh, sharing her own wisdom and and it's a beautiful moment for me and it was generous of Ricky to have seen my character evolve because I was just a little guest in the season one and then because of myself and James he wrote us a little bit more and then it evolved again and I was pleased to have that there there was a there was no Mm. improv in that it was just a yeah and it was a bit I was nervous because I thought well, I just want to get it right. And it is all about timing that and honesty and it can be delivered in so many ways. And I didn't want it to be sentimental because June isn't. So I had to just find a real yeah. middle ground where I sort of said it, but I didn't notice it. I just got to him and then left. So, and yeah. Very different register, I would have thought, Dan, for Kathy, your character in this case. I mean, <laughs> she's permanently lonely, which is very sad. But how do you balance that? In in that case, the the balance seems to be a trickier one to kind of uh, to to tread. Yeah, I I was saying earlier that that sometimes, because I'm playing this slightly sillier character, and then occasionally uh, I'll I'll go to the cafe to do a scene with Ricky and Ricky will cry. And, And because I'm playing a silly character, it's a big gear change to go from silly to responding to him mm. completely honest honestly uh so yeah it, it's 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 been difficult to do actually that but um a really good good nice challenge for me as an actor and but- i think it's always more um touching as well if you go from something that's silly and funny and then mm. and then to be completely honest and and do this upsetting scene it's always more affecting somehow if you come straight from something really silly and funny into something that's really upsetting yeah and i don't, I don't know why it works yeah I, I don't want to give too much away in this respect but there's one scene where you're in a in a laughter yoga that even the words laughter yoga send chills up my spine <laughs> but you're in a laughter yoga and and you literally you turn on a sixpence i would say in the space of 10 seconds yeah. in, in that scene Incredible. Was there, is there huge preparation involved in that type of acting? Is it very different from, you know, something like Mandy or even Sharon Hogan's uh, Hogan's Motherland, where perhaps the comedy is kind of more in front of us? Yeah, it's very different. But um, 
it, it was lovely because it's one of those moments where she goes to this laughter yoga class and she's trying to join in and then all of a sudden this emotion comes up in her and comes flooding out and it, it's uh yeah it's really really quite quite sad uh, but you know you try and play it as honest as you can within the mm. the i'm still keeping character i, I guess but, that is that is what you, you have to look at tony in, in some ways these people are well the characters don't know their characters that they're people they don't know what type of play they're in they don't know what type of TV series they're in whether it's a comedy or a tragedy um, in, in the case of Lenny um, he has a wonderful facility to sit and watch he's a photographer I suppose that's what he does he watches so his reactions are are often quite minuscule but they tell us an awful lot I think yeah he's quite passive in most scenes he especially the scenes when they're doing the interviews because that, like you say he's a photographer that's his job to sit back, keep out of the way, let the let Tony do his job and take the photograph. But it means he gets to see a lot more, I think. He certainly gets to he's always got his eye on Tony. That's his that's his sort of secondary job. He's always got a little eye on him. Um and then yeah, then when he does speak, he either says something profound or something utterly ridiculous. So it's <laughs> you never know what you're gonna get. <laughs> Depends whether he's hungry or not, I think, most of the time. And of course, um, 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 Lenny and June are in a much happier place as season three comes to a close than either of them were when the when the whole thing started off. Again, I don't want to be giving anything away. We've been warned about spoilers in, in that particular regard. But uh, would you like to see, Joe, would you like to see a season four, even though Ricky says, no, that's it, the end? I think it's really clever and good place to stop. I think it's a good choice because it keeps it sacred and really special. And if you go overboard, you know, and you do too many, it takes away that real quality and and people, you know, too much of anything is too much. But I would say do all of them for the rest of my life, another 400. (laughs) Um, Just selfish. (laughs) Yeah, but I, I do, I don't feel any... I was going to say pain. It sounds a bit intense. I don't feel too bad about where we've stopped. I think we're really lucky to have got a third season with Ricky. He stops at two. And I think just that is enough and it is beautifully ended. And um, I'm okay with it if he's okay with it. <laughs> Listen, absolutely gorgeous to have spoken with the three of you. Congratulations on a, a season that made me weep and laugh in equal measure. It, it really is lovely stuff. Thanks a million. Thank you. Bye. Thanks. Uh, Stan Morgan, Joe Hartley and Tony Way there. And let's finish up with a scene from season three of Afterlife. Diane Morgan as Kath introducing her friend, definitely not her boyfriend, to the rest of the office at the Tambury Gazette. Oh, here he is. Told you to wait outside. Give me a lift to a meeting. We're not an item, obviously. I just like turning up in a Rolls Royce. He knows that, don't you? Yeah. Yeah, works out well. What's in it for you, Colin? People think he's got a girlfriend. But he knows that can never be the case. Shame. What with a Rolls Royce and him being a self-made millionaire in a nice block? Would have been perfect. Not for the obvious. What? The face! Duh! Yeah, the face. Even my mum calls me the ugly one. You're okay with that, Colin? It's heartbreaking. I'm destroyed. I used to wish I was dead growing up. But what can you do? Exactly. And that's why I want everyone to know he's not my boyfriend. 
Maybe you should wear a chauffeur's hat. Or a chauffeur's mask. There you go. Dan Morgan in that scene from season three of Af- the of Afterlife, rather. You also heard Ricky Gervais as Tony and Rob Woodhall as the poor old chauffeur, the not boyfriend, Colin. And Afterlife, all of it, the previous two seasons are currently available, but season three will be available on Netflix from this Friday. Any study of cinema listings will throw up plenty of examples of box office winning films having equally popular books or plays as their source material from The Power of the Dog, a Golden Globe winning The Power of the Dog to The Tragedy of Macbeth. You could bet that when placed in capable directorial hands, the transfer of a classic book or play into a screen masterpiece should be a sure thing. Well, that hypothesis has been the subject of Declan Burke's study in the past year for Arena. Tonight he joins us with another example of a film that broke as many if not more hearts than the source book itself. Bunny lovers look away as the book is watershipped down. Richard Adams has made it into a film in uh, six years after its publication in 1978, uh, by made into a film, that is, by the director, Martin Rosen. To get us into a mood for this, have a little listen to this. And I hear the sound of Kleenex boxes being opened right around the country as Art Garfunkel sings the theme song to the 1978 film Watership Down, Declan Burke's choice in his classic book into film series. <laughs> it's kind of misleading, that song for sure, because it's all fluffy. Yes, it's very sad and there's a big tear plopping out of everybody's eye, as I said, uh, Declan. But this really is, it's, it's kind of dark source material, really, isn't it? Uh, children's story told from the point of view of the rabbits. Yes, indeed. Well, it, and it originated as a children's story, uh, Sean. It, it, Richard Adams, in, in long car, car journeys, he started telling these stories, inventing these stories uh, for his two daughters um, uh, off the top of his head, basically. And, and the longer, the, the older the girls got, the more sophisticated and complex the story mm. became. Where, and eventually the girls insisted that he start uh, to, to write this down and, and put a kind of a shape on it, uh, as it were. And, and you're right, that music sounds quite um, banal, uh, we could say that. But in the context of the film, when, you know, anyone who's seen the film will remember mm. when it plays. It is quite dark. And in fact, uh, th- this film was given a U certificate when it came out first. And then was, I think, got a G, which is general all for... And, and, and a whole generation of, of young children were scarred <laughs> for life uh, because it's a very unsentimental and, and as you said, dark take. It, it tells the story of, of this rabbit's epic quest from the point of view of the rabbits and that involves the number of danger that they have to experience on a daily basis. Their, their, their foes, their enemies are known collectively as the thousand uh, because they're constantly at war with virtually every other mm. animal they come into contact. So yeah, very dark material, uh, certainly in places. 
Yeah, and, and I mean, the whole thing is kind of, it's a dream. Fiverr, our, kind of our lead character, one of our very important characters here, has a dream, and that's what's causing the anxiety right across the, 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 the kingdom. Let's have a listen to Fiverr explain his premonition of the fields around their warren, uh, how they're under threat, and it's Richard Breers here as, Fiver, as Fiverr, John Hurt as Hazel. Hazel? Oh, Hazel. This is where it comes from. I know now. A terrible thing is coming. What do you mean? Look. The field. The field. It's covered with blood. Blood? That is... Yeah, no lovely art, Garfunkel, there to ease your anxieties. Richard Breers as Fiverr, John Hart as Hazel in that scene from the film version of Watership Down. Declan Burke looking at that journey from book to screen for us this evening. Watership Down, Declan, it is a real place in Hampshire in England, near where Richard Adams is, uh, where the author grew up. And that maybe gives us a hint of the anxieties that, that he's expressing through the medium of Fiverr. Yeah, I mean, right from the start, the very first chapter in that flip that you've just played, Sean, that, 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 that's Fiverr having a premonition or a vision of, of the destruction of the Warren. And, and as human readers, we know from the clues he puts in is that basically it's, it's builders who are coming in to clear the field um, with bulldozers in order to build, uh, you know, housing estates. Um, and that, that's a fairly timely and timeless uh, theme. Um, but that's the first crisis that the, the, the rabbits face. There are many other uh, crises that they go through. And I think it's worth remembering that, that Richard Adams himself, he served in World War II. He, be, he went on to become a civil servant afterwards. But his concerns, I think, would probably be uh, that there's quite a lot of political and social commentary uh, underneath the, the skin of this, of this book. Uh, and a lot of it, I think, comes to the fore in the character of Hazel himself the main rabbit who is the older brother of Fiverr who's this kind Mm. of weak rabbit who has these visions and Hazel is the only one who takes him seriously and and he's the real hero uh, of of the story and and to a certain extent it's an epic trek this story that starts out from this destroyed warren and leads on to Watership Down now it's only about four or five miles (laughs) in real terms Um, but this is an enormous uh, trek for these characters. It's like yeah. the, the Odyssey or, or the Aeneid or something like that. And, and Hazel is our, not a brave warrior, not a wily trickster. He's a quiet, cautious, conservative, empathic yeah. kind of leader. And I think Richard Adams was trying to create an ideal kind of leader uh, in terms of human society. I, um, I, yeah, let, let's have a listen to, to um, John Hart as Hazel. And this is with his band. Of the, 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 the rabbits are in big trouble here. And the, the, the big enemy here really is the creator, Lord Frith, uh, played by Michael Hordern. And Hazel is trying to make some kind of a bargain with Lord Frith. Lord Frith, I know you've looked after us well. And it's wrong to ask even more of you. But my people are in terrible danger. So I would like to make a bargain with you. My life in return for theirs. There is not a day or night that a doe offers her life for her kittens, or some honest captain of Isla his life for his chief. But there is no bargain. What is, is what must be. 
No bargains to be had. Kind of a, a, mm. a fatalistic quality to that clip there from Watership Down. And we're speaking with Declan Burke this evening about the journey of Watership Down from the Richard Adams novel uh, to the to the film that we late, later got. Uh, when it would came to the researching uh, around this particular uh, aspect of the the rabbit aspect of the book, Adams went to uh, the pages of the naturalist Ronald Lockie. So, is there a certain amount of science, as, as much I suppose environmentalism might be a better way of putting it, involved in how Adams approaches things, Declan? Yeah, I mean, he's very, very practical in terms of the the physical detail of the world that these rabbits inhabit. As you mentioned earlier, all the places that are mentioned, there's a place called Nutley Farm, for example, the Test River watership down itself. These are all real places. And we see them from the rabbit's uh, point uh, point of view. Uh, the private life of the rabbit is the fascinating title of that book by by R- R- Ronald Lockley, which is a book that I'll be reading very shortly, I have to say. Um, but apart from aspects like Lord Frith, for example, there is a mythology, uh, a cosmogony that these rabbits develop. The practical world is very well researched. It's it's a very unsentimental, very practical, very hard scrabble world that these rabbits have to to negotiate. Um, now. Richard Adams kind of amplifies it. Not only are the rabbits under threat from all these other predators, they also come under threat from other rabbits, and particularly the Warren Afrafa, which is run by General Woundworth, who is a, 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 a rabbit and a half, if I can put it that way. We might talk about him uh, mm. a little later. Right. Um, but before we get there, that that whole un- unsentimental view goes right against the song that we heard at the top, really, doesn't hmm. it? Uh, yes, it does, but only I suppose if we, you know, once you see it in context, the context of the, and I'm afraid I'm going to give a spoiler here, Sean. The context in the middle of the film is that Hazel has made this huge sacrifice, mm. and this is the conversation he's trying to have with Lord Frith, and is as this kind of pastoral kind of song plays out. What we're seeing on the screen is effectively Hazel's soul leaving his body and bounding away with the black rabbit of Inlay, which yeah. is the rabbit's uh, angel of death and so forth. So, yes, you have that, that sweetness of the, the, the melody and, this, and the, the lyrics, and it's undercut by this really vividly drawn uh, and fairly harrowing imagery. It, 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 they, they, they move then uh, as to how well or not it transferred from its written state, you know, in, into celluloid... I, I, I get the idea, I, I know I haven't spoken about this before, that Watership Down in itself is a book that is full of philosophy and maybe the fact that Adams was telling it to his daughters as they grew up, maybe he was giving them a kind of an environmentalist lesson uh, as they became that little bit older and maybe could cope with that type of material. Does that transfer to the screen? Uh, less so, I would say, than the novel. The novel is much more explicit, not just in terms of environmentalism, but also kind of political theory and social commentary and so forth. The film kind of, <clears throat> if you know what to look for, it's there, particularly in terms of how the watership down rabbits, the civilised rabbits, if I can put it that way, how mm. they interact with the rabbits from Afrafa, who are this, led by this either, you know, you can be either Hitler or Stalin, whichever you want, but he is an authoritarian tyrant who runs his warren on, on, on military basis and so forth. It, so it is there. Uh, it, it's less um, less detailed and less explored, I suppose, than in the novel, but that's necessarily yeah. a, a function of what happens with, with adaptations. Well, let's give a... a, a is one of the, the Afafra group as yeah, well, isn't yeah. he? Voiced by Zero Mostel in this clip that we're about to hear. And he's explaining to the rabbits that we want, whose side we are on, who are on this quest for Watership Down, they're all males. And he's explaining why, you know, 
for all male rabbits, maybe <laughs> maybe Watership Down isn't going to be quite the paradise that they are expecting. Piss off, you stupid bunnies! You got no mates! There are mates! There are cheeks! Plenty trouble for you! You need mates! There we have Zero Mostel in that clip from Watership Down. So let us move on then, <laughs> Declan, to General Woundworth. This is this, this really is fascism is being exposed. That that's what Adams was at here, and and given that he was coming from the Second World War, I suppose that's that's feeding into what he the story he's telling. I, I think so, absolutely. Um, and it is you know, as I say, it could be Stalin or or Hitler. It doesn't really matter. I think it's it's all about the fact that General Wingworth. Um, who is physically an, an impressive uh, rabbit? He is, you know, he has zero morality. He runs his his um, his war in like a military encampment. People are punished, humiliated, and killed if they step out of line and so forth. But but Hazel and his rabbits have no choice but to try and infiltrate this war to bring some mates, as as Kihar puts it, back to watership down. That is a fantastic sequence. I read this book first when I was eleven, and I was very impressed with the way that General Woonworth. Uh, played himself or, or at, mm. at the end of the novel how he stood up to his final challenge because the end of the novel really ha- it's it's watership down is being besieged by by uh, Woundworth and and his his ferocious rabbits and at the last moment uh, Hazel has managed to trick a dog into running amongst them and this slavering dog starts running around basically chomping um, chomping rabbits to bits to <coughs> excuse me to bits uh, and and from the novel if I can read just a short bit Sean if I have time Woundworth alone stood his ground as the rest fled in all directions he remained where he was bristling and snarling bloody fanged and bloody clawed the dog dog sprang forward and even as they ran his Ausla could hear the general's raging squealing cry come back you fools dogs aren't dangerous come back and fight and this idea this image which is brilliantly transformed mm. to the screen of the general with his the one-eyed general with his eye patch and so forth blood streaming from him leaping for the jaws of the dog is one of the most vivid yeah. uh, cinema images of my youth certainly and, and and as is often the case when you hear it on radio you, you can imagine the pictures Come back! Come back, you fools! Come back! Come back and fight! Dogs aren't dangerous! General Woundworth's body was never found. It could be that he still lives his fierce life somewhere else. But from that day on, mother rabbits would tell their kittens that if they did not do as they were told, the general would get them. So be warned. That's <laughs> uh, General Woundworth, the voice there, uh, voiced by Harry Andrews. And it was Declan Burke before that who was speaking to us about the journey of the Richard Adams novel. I would worship down to the film that we all know and love, partly, if not practically totally because of Art Garfunkel's wonderful song Bright Eyes.
The Objects of Love is the title of a new exhibition opening at Dublin Castle tomorrow. It's presented by the Office of Public Works in association with Holocaust Awareness Ireland. The exhibition tells the story of one Jewish family before, during and after the Second World War told through a collection of precious family objects, photographs and documents. All of the items come from the family of the Dublin-based art dealer Oliver Sears. They give a really intimate insight into the human experience of one family during a period where the very nature of humanity was called into question. Oliver Sears with me in studio this evening and I suppose it's a, it's a, it's a good way to follow on from Watership Down which kind of deals with the, that period in an oblique type of way but you're dealing with it directly and and face on here Oliver. The items obviously that, that are shown in the exhibition hugely personal to you I would have thought and, and to your family the subjects are your mother and your grandmother. Tell us a little bit uh, of the story of your mother and her family. Well, the exhibition presents um, a, a kind of broad sweep of what happened to our family. Um, the beating heart of the exhibition is, in fact, my grandmother and my mother. Um, my mother was born in February 1939 in Woodge, um, mm. a, a city 130 kilometres southwest of Warsaw. Um, my grandfather, her father, ran a stocking factory. It was a, an industrial town. When war broke out on the 1st of September, um, my grandfather was arrested very quickly and disappeared. And we really, for years, didn't know exactly what happened to him. Um, it took an awful lot of research on my part to find out the truth. In fact, he was murdered um, in November 1939. It caused my grandmother uh, to flee to Warsaw, probably thinking there was safety in numbers. And um, within a few months, uh, they were rounded up and put into the Warsaw ghetto where they spent two years. My grandmother bought forged uh, ID papers um, that allowed her and my mother to escape the ghetto, to live as Aryans um, on the Aryan side, um, and to run the gauntlet of Nazi occupation. We'll come, we'll come back to how exactly they managed to give this idea of being members of the so-called Aryan race or the Aryan race as it as it was termed, but let us t let us look at some of the specifics of the photographs and the and the documents that are on display as part of the exhibition. I'm looking here at a reproduction of, you know, if I didn't know the context of a little child sitting on a stool with a, a book or a, a copy book of some kind in her hand, um, with Warsaw 1941 written at the bottom of it. An, an innocent looking picture well, with no context. Yeah, of course, um, all the family photographs that we've used, in, in fact, all the family objects um, are kind of mundane and banal until you put them in, in mm. context. And because I'm so lucky to have all these documents and photographs, it was very easy for me to hang the story chronologically on them. Um, that particular photograph is 
one of a set of three and you're you're absolutely you should tell us sorry i i didn't say who is the who is the photograph so, of? so it's my mother aged two and a half um warsaw 1941 is a little bit of a giveaway yeah. that's taken inside the warsaw ghetto so you you have these three images of a little girl uh, the one you're looking at she's engrossed in a book um the other two um she's um doing what two-and-a-half-year-olds do. She's kind of looking at the camera gleefully. She's being a little kid. And, of course, um, there she was, basically uh, waiting her turn to be deported, um, probably in 90% of the cases, to Treblinka, where she would have been gassed within two hours. And yes, the, 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 what comes off, particularly of this photograph that I'm looking at, is this idea that for those in the ghetto, there was an attempt by the families to keep as much of a normality around for a family life as was possible, given that, you know, as you said, that within hours they could be deported or brought off somewhere in a train and that was it. That, that was, was the was end it. of life. Uh, um, absolutely. And, and the ghetto had its own hierarchy. It had schools. um it had um, a council, it had um, a theatre, uh, police force. Um, there was a semblance mm. of uh, trying to make a society, a community. Uh, let's talk about some of the other um, exhibits that are, uh, will be on display at the exhibition. The Gold Powder Compact, what's involved there? Well, th this is an extraordinary historical object, um, when they, uh, they being my grandmother, her um, mother-in-law, my great-grandmother, and my mother uh, arrived back in their apartment in Wuj at the end of the war in 1945, courtesy of the Russians who had liberated Poland. Um, Poland was still a very dangerous place for Jews to be. Uh, unfortunately, there, were, there was a lot of animosity towards Jews by Poles. There were pogroms, and there were a lot of Jews murdered after the Nazis were vanquished. And my grandmother stuck it out, but by 1947 decided it was just far too dangerous. So uh, she sold their apartment for a fraction of its value. She bought gold, which is the currency of the refugee, and had it melted down into... A, a very ordinary-looking gold powder compact in, in order to disguise her worth mm. in plain sight. It, it looks like an ordinary powder compact until you pick it up. Yeah, uh, so even more so than the, the actual documents, this was a passport, or at least it was a way of travelling, it was a way of getting what she needed whenever she got to where she, where she was going. Um, in the midst of this too, we get an engagement ring. The engagement ring is is a wonderful story. Um, it's an, an Art Deco ring, an old-fashioned uh, diamond cut with with rubies, that was given to my grandmother in 1930 by her father for her 18th birthday, and uh, this ring was sewn into my mother's coat as a toddler, um, hidden and survived the war and came out. And the, 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 the wonderful 
the wonderful sort of circularity to the story is that um, you know it started as an object of love. It became an object of value and currency, and it ended up as my wife's engagement ring. And my wife, Catherine Punch, has put her heart and soul mm. into this organization, this exhibition. So it's the most fitting and and loving story here. Yeah, it's it's uh, it's an extraordinary story. And there are photographs of from Amelia Stein of both the Powder Compact and and the ring that are part of the exhibition as well. That's right. The other thing that I have sitting in front of me here are reproductions of the forged papers. Now, you might explain to me, particularly, I, I, I'll point the, the picture out to you. Uh, who, are we lo- who am I looking at here? Um, a woman, I would say. Is, what age is she in this picture? Um, that's my grandmother, Krisha. Hmm. Um, she is um, exactly 31. And she looks to have very light hair. Was that... That was An accident of fate? No, it was no, dyed. That was dyed. Um, uh, she had great advantages um, given that uh, she, was, she was hiding. Mm. She was disguising her identity. Her great attributes were that she was very good looking, um, that she spoke fluent German, and most importantly, she didn't speak Polish with a Yiddish accent, which would have been a dead giveaway. Mm. So she was actually in her element talking German to Nazi mm. soldiers. It's uh, o- almost hard to conceive of this. but I, I'm wondering, obviously, you know, the way you tell the story of the engagement ring or the story of the of the, the, the powder box, these were obviously stories that were told in your family and these items were part of your family's possession for so long and must have held huge value and, and literally held the history of your family within them. How important was it to you and why did you want to put them on, on public display to tell the story? I, I wish it was that simple. The truth is that my mother didn't speak a word about the Holocaust until she was 51. She couldn't, I presume. She, she couldn't. She couldn't. So these objects um, emerged little by little, as did the story. Um, I grew up in a house of secrets. It, it's a It's a very... Um, destabilizing way to learn about your own identity. Um, however, having reached this point, I'm 53. My mother will be 83 in February. I feel the burden of history now weighing. Time is running out, and I have to decide what I'm going to do with this history. And uh, one of the one of the driving forces was to make sure that this history isn't forgotten, that it's understood also, that it's taught. And um, we started this organisation just a year ago, although I've been... I was quite reticent for many years Mm. myself. It's only uh, nine years that I've actually been speaking out about this, that it's a way of navigating a post-Holocaust world in a way that makes sense to me. So uh, bringing meaning to these lives that were lost by bringing them into the lives of others seems the most natural way of uh, uh, giving them some respectability and value back.
Well, thank you for your courage um, in doing so and indeed for sharing the stories with us this evening, Oliver. That's Oliver Sears. The exhibition, The Objects of Love, opens at 6pm tomorrow. That's January the 12th. It runs through until February the 13th. The exhibition is hosted by the Office of Public Works in association with Holocaust Awareness Ireland and is on display at Dublin Castle's Bedford Hall. Full details on Holocaust Awareness Ireland. Dot com And that, that is our lot for this Tuesday evening. Leah Murphy researched. Janice Murphy was the broadcast coordinator. Kieran Dunn was on sound this evening. And tonight's programme was produced by Ola McGowan. Talk to you tomorrow night, 7 o'clock, once again here on RT Radio 1.